so this is the last talk um, in the series on the Buddha and um, I think you've all heard me before haven't you apart from Elizabeth no you haven't been around for these have you okay just a, a little bit of slight recap for you I'm sorry for those of you who heard this recap before but for those newcomers here this evening so I, I'm, I'm giving this short series of talks four talks on uh, really we're trying to get to know the Buddha a bit better um, so I'm taking um, some suttas some discourses from the Pali Canon and uh, which is the Theravada uh, Canon and I'm looking at them not looking for teachings of the Buddha but I'm looking for the way he behaved I'm looking at these suttas to see how he behaved with people and how he taught so we get more of a feel for him as a human being what it might have been like to meet him so um, the first talk was when we when the Buddha was wandering on his own and he stayed the night in a potter's shed with with a bhikkhu one of his disciples and the bhikkhu didn't know this was the Buddha so very intimate rather lovely meeting wasn't it really beautiful meeting between these two and the Buddha's humour, uh, how the Buddha quickly realised that this man was talking about the Buddha and he didn't realise the Buddha was sitting right in front of him. Uh, I must say I think that is my favourite um, of all the meetings with the Buddha when this, this man, completely devoted to the Buddha, didn't know this was him. And how the Buddha took this up and um, played a little bit. He was very playful with this man. Lovely. And then the second one we did was uh, with Nigroda, wasn't it? Um, when Nigroda, the, the leader of another sect, um, boasts about if he ever met the Buddha, he would, uh, he would baffle him with a single question. He would knock him over like an empty pot. And the Buddha heard this, and so he came and met Nigroda on purpose. So he went out of his way to meet with Nigroda to, to have this conversation. And of course, uh, Nigroda didn't baffle him with, an empty, with a single question. He didn't knock him over like an empty pot. Uh, so that was another meeting. And then the third one, last week, we looked at uh, a prince. A prince, Prince Abaya, came to see the Buddha. But he came on the, on the request of his teacher, uh, Nigantha Nataputta. Uh, with a trick question uh, to see if he could baffle the Buddha and of course it didn't work at all so uh, this week it's uh, what uh, up until now I've chosen uh, meetings with the Buddha I've chosen texts which are probably really not very well known at all P probably none of you have had come across those particular texts those stories before I'm guessing but this evening I'm gonna talk about a very well-known text a very well-known meeting with the Buddha and if I say it's a meeting with a serial killer would you guess what I'm talking about anybody guess yeah, yeah? Angulimala so it's a meeting with Angulimala and um, most people know the first part of the story the, the first meeting with the Buddha but uh, the second part what happens afterwards usually is left it's like the first bit is the dramatic meeting of these two and that's as far as it goes in most people's storytelling but there's a couple of extra things that happen at the end which I find very interesting as a follow-up to what happens after the meeting uh, but the meeting itself is um, really interesting and very dramatic and I've got a few things to say about it so Angulimala, his name is a nickname, as so often in these texts, you get, you get people's families, family name, but you also get a nickname. And Angulimala is his nickname, and it means rosary of fingers. Um, a rosary, as in, you know, like Tibetan uh, monks, um, finger the rosary, over and over and over again. So Mala is a rosary. Um, and so Angulimala had made a necklace of fingers from the people he'd killed. Now why he's doing that the text doesn't say. Maybe he was just a psycho, maybe it's as simple as that. The text doesn't say why he was killing all these people but the strange thing about it was 
he was trying to collect 1,000 fingers for his rosary and he'd got 999 so he just needed another one he was looking for another one why he needed an extra finger maybe he was just a bit of a um, maybe he was OCD as well maybe he just needed these fingers and th there's nothing in the text that tells us why he was doing this but there, there are a couple of commentaries ancient commentaries which gives some idea the thing about the ancient commentaries is you can't fully trust them um, sometimes you can't help thinking as you read them that they're just made up backstories to give some kind of context for the sutta but there's an interesting article by um, Richard Gombrich in his book um, How Buddhism Began towards the end of that book there's a chapter on Angulimala and there there's this idea that Angulimala was the son of a Brahmin and his original name was Ahingsaka. So do you know what Ahingsaka means? It means non-violence. <laughs> so that was his given name. Um, and when he, when he came of age, he had a teacher, a Brahmin teacher, and uh, this man, Ahingsaka, was extremely good. He was a really, really good pupil. And uh, his teacher began to... No, no, I'll tell you what it was. In the commentary, it states that um, some of the other disciples became jealous of Ahimsa because he was so good. And they spread a rumour around to the effect that Ahimsa had slept with his teacher's wife. And this got to the, the Brahmin teacher and he was furious. And so what he decided to do was, before you can leave your teacher and become of age as it were before you can become a teacher yourself in the Brahmin tradition you had to do something for your teacher so what this Brahmin gave Ahimsaka to do was to collect a thousand get a rosary of a thousand fingers you had to kill a thousand people to get this rosary then he'd be free so it's a really awful thing to do to to this man whether this is true or not we don't really need to look into right now it, it doesn't really matter but if it is true it's a very interesting um, idea that in a way Ahimsaka was therefore violent he was killing people in the name of religion which is something that we're familiar with isn't it very familiar kind of an idea that people kill in the name of religion so if the commentary is true we've got a very familiar story to ourselves but anyway, the text doesn't say that, so can I believe that story or not? The main thing to bear in mind is that Angulimala was, um, as it says here, Angulimala was murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns and districts were laid waste by him. He was constantly murdering people and he wore their fingers as a garland. So this is the only backstory we get in the text. So um, according to the commentary, Angulimala had to kill one more person. And his mother was nearby. And he thought, I'll kill her. Which is not a very good idea, is it really, to kill your mother? But um, the Buddha got to hear about this in one way or another. And he thought, I have to stop this from happening. I have to stop this man from killing his mother. That's what the commentary says, but it doesn't say that in the text. All we know in the text is that the Buddha heard about Angulimala. He knew he was in the district, so he went looking for him. He knew that he used to hide out in a wood. And uh, tr as travelers went through this wood, he would ambush them. So the Buddha thought, I'll go into the wood and I'll try to find him. So already you've got an exciting story. Of course you know, don't you already, the, the Buddha's not going to get killed. He's not, he's not going to get murdered by Angulimala. So in a way the tension is immediately dropped. But I watched uh, the James Bond movie the other day, Skyfall, and of course I knew that James Bond would never ever get killed, but it was still somewhat exciting. So... Um, the Buddha is James Bond. Uh, so the Buddha decided to do this, but um, as he was walking through this wood, villagers saw him and they tried to stop him. 
they said, do not take this road, recluse. Uh, it's interesting they call him recluse, so maybe they didn't know he was the Buddha. Do not take this road, recluse. On this road is the bandit Angulimala, who is murderous, bloody-handed, etc., etc., etc. So when this was said, the Blessed One went on in silence, so he didn't answer. Now we heard about this last week, didn't we, about the Buddha's silence, so he didn't say anything, he just continued on his way. For the second time, people saw him and said, don't go this way, because Angulimala's down there. And then the third time, and the Buddha just continued on his way. So, quickly we get to the point. Quickly. The bandit Angulimala saw the Blessed One, the Buddha, coming in the distance. And when he saw him, he thought, it is wonderful, it is marvellous. Men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30 and even 40, but still they have fallen into my hands. So he's quite a guy, isn't he? 40 people at a time he has ambushed. And now this recluse comes alone, unaccompanied, as if driven by fate. Why shouldn't I take this recluse's life? Angulimala then took up his sword and shield, buckled on his bow and quiver, and followed close behind the Buddha. So now we get to the bit that's really famous. The famous part of the story is... Angulimala was stalking the Buddha. He was coming up behind him. Uh, but he found that the Buddha was walking a bit too fast for him. He couldn't quite catch him. You know, you know this bit, I suppose. Uh, so he, he, he started jogging behind him. But the Buddha just carried on walking in his normal walking pace. And Angulimala, even at a jogging pace, couldn't catch the Buddha. So then he started running after the Buddha. And the Buddha just continued to walk at a normal walking pace. And still, the gap between them just didn't get any smaller. So the Buddha was performing a miracle. Now, it's not often that the Buddha does this, but he does it here. Now, um, I expect the people of India and Burma and Thailand, the people who, who have, would read these texts and are familiar with them, would have absolutely no problem with this idea of the Buddha performing a miracle. But we do, don't we? We sort of think, mm, how does that happen? How did that work? Um, so I'll, I'll come back on to that in a minute. But let's take it literally for the time being. So what the text says is, Then the Blessed One performed such a feat of supernormal power that the bandit Angulimala, though walking as fast as he could, could not catch up with the Blessed One who was walking at his normal pace. Then the bandit Angulimala thought, it is wonderful, it is marvellous. Formerly I could catch up even with a swift elephant and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift horse and seize it, a swift chariot, a swift deer, and seize it. Though I, but though now, though I'm walking as fast as I can, I cannot catch up with this recluse who is walking at his normal pace. He stopped and called out to the Buddha, Stop, recluse! Stop, recluse! And the Buddha replies. He says, I have stopped, Angulimala. You stop too. So this is a really famous little episode. Do you know it? Do you know this episode? I have stopped, Angulimala. You stop too. Um, now, this did Angulimala's head in, because he knew, and quote, these recluses, sons of the Shakyans, and the Buddha was a son of the Shakyans, speak truth, assert truth. But though this recluse is still walking, he says, I have stopped Angulimala, you stop too. So this is really very, very puzzling and confusing for Angulimala because he knows that the Buddha and his followers always tell the truth. But it seems that he's not telling the truth, so this is really doing his head in. Now this is, I find this very, very interesting that the power of the truth, the power of truth. Um, this is something that I think in our society we're not 
all that familiar with how powerful truth telling can be but if has anybody ever read um Les Miserables not seen the musical but read the book the very fat novel nobody okay so it's a very very good novel and uh, it concerns Jean Valjean who uh, was in prison for a number of years for stealing a loaf of bread for his family he was in prison eventually he's released um, but he's on as it were bail and he goes and stay he, he asks if he can stay in a bishop's house now the bishop was an unusual bishop he didn't live in a great big palace he lived in a very small house with his housekeeper so he and Jean Valjean didn't know this was a bishop's house so he just knocked on the door and said can I stay here tonight and they he had I, I think he was branded with a, a criminal's brand so the bishop knew exactly that what was going on here this was someone who'd just been released so he said yeah you can stay so he stayed the night and he offered him a meal so they had a meal and the bishop brought out the silver the silver candlesticks and the silver cutlery and then eventually they finished the meal they all went to their beds in the night uh, Jean Valjean the silver was really playing on his mind and he couldn't help himself he stole it stole the candlesticks and the cutlery and off he went and uh, later on the the police the gendarmes found him with this silver and they knew where it came from he knew he'd stolen it so they, they brought him back to the bishop's house and they said is this your silver and uh, it's remarkable what happened because the bishop said yeah it's my silver but I gave it to him so um, this was uh, Jean Val uh, Jean Valjean just couldn't believe what was happening so the gendarmes, the gendarmes couldn't believe it either but they had to let him go and uh, off he went with the silver a free man and as a result of that he had a deep insight uh, what happened was um, he was just hanging about uh, out in the countryside and a young boy went past him went walking past him flicking a coin and uh, as he went past him as the coin hit the, the floor Jean Valjean put his foot on it and the boy said uh, can I have my coin back and Jean Valjean wouldn't let him have his coin back and he was a hardened criminal by then he'd been in a really bad prison so he was really hardened and the boy eventually went off crying and as the boy went off crying there's this amazing description of perfect vision there's this amazing description of Jean Valjean having this deep turnaround in his in his being where he realized what he'd done to this boy and it completely changed his life it's remarkable and from then on he became a very saintly person but the police were after him I can't remember now why they were but they were after him and uh, uh, he went and he, he, he went to some town and he, he had the silver so he, he sold it and he set up in business and he became a very successful businessman and he was um, he employed many many people but he was ah oh, that's what it was that's what it was this is a rather long story this isn't it I didn't mean to tell such a long story I might as well finish it now so what happened was um, they were after Jean Valjean and they found, he heard that in the next town Jean Valjean had been caught and he was on trial so this gave the real Jean Valjean a real problem because this man was gonna be on trial and probably sent to prison and it was he, they got the wrong man so then he had a real problem so he didn't know what to do eventually he went to the court and he owned up he said this man isn't Jean Valjean I'm Jean Valjean so they tried him they found him guilty I can't remember why he was free after that but he was free he went home I think maybe to get his things together and um, the police came knocking on his door and he hid now this is the bit I'm coming to he hid he was in the house of a sister a nun and she was known throughout the whole district as someone who always told the truth never told a lie and Victor Hugo makes it very clear to you as you before this happens before you you get to know this nun a bit and you realize how 
utterly people respect this aspect to her. She always told the truth, no matter what you asked her, she would tell the truth. So she was famous for this. So Jean Valjean was hiding in her house. The, the police came and said, is Jean Valjean here? And you're sure in the novel that she's gonna say, yes, he is, because she always tells the truth. And guess what she does? She says, no, he's not. And the police don't bother to search the house because this woman always tells the truth. So they just walk off. They search everywhere except, everywhere except her house. It is an incredible kind of story and a real lesson in truth-telling. Of course, she's blown it now because she's just told a lie, but up until then, she's always told the truth and it has a tremendously good effect on people. So the Buddha was like this. The Buddha was known for never telling a lie and his disciples were known for never telling a lie. So that's why at this point, Angulimala, his head, He's confused, he doesn't understand what's going on anymore. Not only has he tried to catch up with the Buddha and he couldn't, now the Buddha's saying he's stopped and he obviously hasn't stopped. So he's like, what is going on? He just, his head is done in, as I say. So, he says, while you're walking, recluse, you tell me you have stopped. But now, when I have stopped, you say, I have not stopped. I ask you now, O recluse, about the meaning. How is it that you have stopped and I have not? What is going on? So Angulimala, uh, the Buddha replies, Angulimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence towards living beings. But you have no restraint towards things that live. That is why I have stopped and you have not. So um, the Buddha, when he said, I've stopped, he didn't mean I've stopped walking. He meant I've stopped completely being violent to other living beings. So he's talking metaphorically rather than literally. And uh, that's the way I see the miracle as well, actually. Uh, I personally find it hard to believe in miracles and supernormal powers and things like that. I accept that in the text it's all taken very literally, but personally I find that quite difficult. And I, I understand this episode of the Buddha walking and Angulimala walking very fast. It's, he walks fast rather than runs, I've just realised. Can't catch him. How is this? And the way I see that is the incommensurability of violence and non-violence. How they just don't meet. How they're two completely different ways of being. And um, uh, the Buddha is, you could say, living in a different reality to Angulimala. He is not living in the same world. So Angulimala simply cannot meet him. He can't close that gap. While he's being violent, he cannot close the gap between him and the Buddha. So uh, I see it much more like that as a kind of met a miracle which really suggests rather a metaphor for the incommensurability of violence and non-violence. So, this has a tremendous effect on Angulimala. He says, oh, at long last, this recluse, a venerated sage, has come to this great forest for my sake. Having heard your teaching, I will indeed renounce evil forever. And so saying, he took his swords and weapons and flung them into a gaping chasm's pit. And then he worshipped the Buddha's feet. And then he asked for the going forth. So I'm going to mention another story now. Has anybody ever seen The Mission? The film The Mission. Wonderful film. A Robert Bolt film with... Um, Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro and... Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons. Okay, yeah. Violence and non-violence. Tremendous film. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, don't worry, because uh, too many stories. But um, uh, Robert De Niro plays a man who, uh, in the past, um, captured natives. They're somewhere in South America, aren't they? I can't remember the country now. Captured natives of this forest for slavery, sold them into slavery. That's how he earned his living. He was a slave trader. Uh, but one day uh, he's in love with a woman who his brother's in love with. I'm telling you the story now. And um, 
he accidentally kills his brother in a duel in a fight and he's completely devastated by this and he can't do anything and Jeremy Irons the priest Jeremy Irons comes to see him and he has a real go at him about this he says you know this is a real opportunity you've really got to get your life together now you can't mope here all the time you've you've got to move on and Robert De Niro um, uh, has a conversion he converts to Christianity and his um, what is it when you uh, have to make amends what is that penance. penance his penance is to put all his weapons that he used in his armor into a great net and carry them on foot through the forest to the tribe where he used to you know kidnap people from this tribe and they had to go up this great big hill he's going up this great big hill with these weapons you know an incredible huge penance gets to the top of the hill with Jeremy Irons the villagers see him they recognize him for what he was the slave trader and one of them comes up with a I think it's a sword isn't it and it looks like he's going to just kill him puts the sword down and I, I think he embraces him doesn't he or he makes it clear that he's welcome Robert De Niro just breaks down in tears one of these best parts I think it just breaks down in tears his tears of joy he's just his face is amazing he's just so happy that this man has welcomed him after what he's done to his tribe and he just lets this net go net of um, weapons and armor roll down this hill into the river and it, it just falls down this cliff right into the river so the message is very clear isn't it he's left his violence he's just thrown it down just like Angulimala does here so if you ever want to get a feel for this section of the text just watch that movie because it's a very strong feelingful part of the story okay so this is a great um, conversion for Angulimala the, band, the bandit worshipped the Buddha's feet and then and there asked for the going forth. He, he asked if he could become a bhikkhu, a monk. And the enlightened one, the sage of great compassion, the teacher of the world with all its gods, addressed him with these words, come bhikkhu. The Pali is ehi bhikkhave. And this was the early way of ordaining someone into the monkhood. Nowadays, of course, there's a great long ritual, but in the early days of the Buddhist ministry, he just used to say, Ehi Bhikkhave, come, monk. In other words, you are now a monk. And I love this, really love this. And uh, I sometimes, when I read this again and again, I, I get the feeling that the Buddha's saying, it's over. Yeah? Your old life is over. Yeah? It's finished. You've got a new life now. That, that's the way I understand this. Come, Bhikkhave. Ehi uh, Bhikkhave. Come, monk. There's another film where somebody says that to someone else. I can't remember what it was now, but someone's led a very violent... Oh, I know what it was. It's Witness. Witness, yeah. Where he's... Yeah, the, 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 the bent policeman eventually gets caught and he says, it's over. Very, very softly to him, it's over. It's like that life is finished now. And that was how he became a bhikkhu. So that's the story everyone knows. So um, I'm just going to tell you the next bit now because this is really interesting, I find. So now Angulimala is a monk. He's a bhikkhu. He's killed 999 people and he's now a bhikkhu. Yeah. Now on that occasion... Great crowds of people were gathering at, uh, gathering at the gates of King Pasenides in a palace, very loud and noisy, crying, Sire. That's the way they spoke in those days, isn't it? Sire. The bandit Angulimada is in your realm. He is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, etc., etc. Villages, towns and districts have been weighed laced by him. He is constantly murdering people and he wears their fingers as a garland. The king must put him down. 
as a kind of demonstration outside the king's gates. So in, then in the middle of the day, the king drove out of Sarvati with a cavalry of 500 men and set out. He drove thus as far as the road was passable for carriages, then he dismounted from his carriage and he went forward on foot to the Buddha. After paying homage to the Buddha, he sat down on one side and the Blessed One said to him, What is it, great king? Is King's King Senir, Senir Bimbisara of Magadha attacking you, or the Lichavis of Vaishali, or other hostile kings? In other words, why have you just taken 500 of your soldiers out on a trip? You know, is someone attacking you? I can't help thinking this is another uh, aspect of the Buddha's humour here, that he knows very well what's going on. And he's kind of taking the mickey out of him a bit. 500 people to catch one person? Venerable Sir, King Bimbisawa of Magadha is not attacking me, etc, etc, etc. But there is a bandit in my realm named Angurimala, who is murderous, bloody-handed, uh, <laughs> given to blows and violence, etc, etc, etc. He's constantly murdering people and he wears their fingers as a garland. I shall never be able to put him down, Venerable Sir. He, he's probably been trying for some time now and he hasn't been able to catch him. So this is lovely, the next bit. Lovely bit of the Buddhist humour. Great King, suppose you were to see that Angulimala had shaved off his hair and beard, put on the yellow robe and gone forth from home into homelessness that he was abstaining from killing living beings and, take, and from taking what is not given, five precepts, and from false speech, and that he was refraining from eating at night and ate only in one part of the day and was celibate, virtuous, of good character. If you were to see him thus, how would you treat him? Venerable Sir, I would pay homage to him. I would rise up for him, invite him to be seated. Or I would invite him to accept Rome, robes, alms food, a resting place, or medicinal requisites, etc, etc. But, venerable sir, he is an immoral man, one of evil character. How could he ever have such virtue and restraint? Angulimala was sitting next to the Buddha. So the Buddha said, this is Angulimala. Isn't that wonderful? should be made into a film this, shouldn't it? <laughs> it's a really lovely little episode. He's, I can't help thinking he's using his humour again. You know, what if you were to meet Angulimala and he was a monk now? You know, just suppose. And this is Angulimala. There he is, shaven-headed, a monk. Then King Pasanedi, Pasanedi was frightened, alarmed and terrified. Knowing this, the Blessed One told him, Do not be afraid, Gate King, do not be afraid. There is nothing for you to fear from him. He knows that Angulimala is a new person, a changed man. Then the king's fear, alarm and terror subsided. He went over to the Venerable Angulimala and said, Venerable Sir, is the Noble Lord really Angulimala? Is this really Angulimala? Yes, Great King. Venerable Sir, of what family is the Noble Lord's father? Of what family is his mother? And there's a, there's a bit of discussion between them. So that's the meeting of the, the king, and the king realising that Angulimala is a changed man. He doesn't need to kill him now. He doesn't need to put him down. There's no need for that anymore. No need for violence. So that saves the king from killing another person too, doesn't it? So there's a kind of knock-on effect of non-violence. That's not all though. So, Angulimala, of course, was what's called a forest dweller. He begged for his food. He either just picked food from the trees or he went into the village and begged for food. And um, uh, oh no, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Oh, we haven't finished with the king yet. The king said to the Buddha, it is wonderful, venerable sir, it is marvellous how the Blessed One tames the untamed, brings peace to the unpeaceful, leads to nirvana those who have not attained nirvana. Venerable sir, we ourselves could not tame him with force 
and weapons. Yet, the Blessed One, the Buddha, has tamed him without force or weapons. And now, Venerable Sir, we depart. We are busy and have much to do. Now is the time, Great King, to do as you think fit. So, he went off. Now, the next bit's very interesting. Uh, Angulimala went off into Savati, quite a large town, for food, for arms. He went to beg. And um, while he was there, he saw a very um, uh, traumatic sight. He saw a woman giving birth to a deformed child. And when he saw this, he, was, he had compassion for this woman. And his, his thought was, how beings are afflicted. Indeed, how beings are afflicted. And when he, when he got enough food to eat, he went back into the forest and he went to the Buddha and he told him what he'd seen. And it was obviously had a quite a big effect on him. It's amazing, isn't it? This man killed a number of people, but now he's seen this woman giving birth to a deformed child. He's really quite upset by it. So he's, he, that just shows you how much he's changed. He's now quite a sensitive person, sensitive to suffering. And so he, he, he sees this and he, he tells the Buddha about it. So the Buddha says to him, Angulimala, go back, find that woman and say to her, Sister, since I was born, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. <coughs> Angulimala, who is a truth teller these days, says, Venerable Sir, wouldn't I be telling a deliberate lie for I have, I have intentionally deprived many beings of life. So the Buddha says in reply, okay, go and say to that woman, since I was born with the noble birth, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. So the Buddha makes it clear to him now that he's now living a new life. He's taken up a new way of life. So he does that. And uh, interestingly, in Burma, I think it is, it might be Sri Lanka, I can't remember, one of those countries where Theravada Buddhism is, is the religion of the country. Um, uh, this is what you say to a woman who's giving birth. You say what, the, um, what Angulimala just said. Um, Sister, since I was born, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. So it's a kind of spell that's used. Okay, so he goes and does that. Now, the final bit of the story is very interesting. Before long, dwelling alone, withdrawn, diligent, ardent and resolute, the venerable Angulimala, by realising for himself with direct knowledge, here and now entered upon and abided in that supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from home into homelessness. He was enlightened. So Angulimala became enlightened sometime after meeting the Buddha. That isn't the end of the story though, because then he goes into Savati again for food. He's an enlightened being now. He's now a hunt. Somebody recognises him. Somebody recognises him from his previous life when he was a murderer. So he throws a clod of earth at him. And a gang kind of surrounds him and they start throwing things at him. So somebody threw a clod at him and hit him. Someone else threw a stick and hit his body. Someone else threw a pot's herd. What is a pot's herd? You get this in these ancient texts, don't you? I don't know what a pot's herd is. And hit his body. Then, with blood running from his cut head, with his bowl broken and with his outer robe torn, so he's beaten up by these people. Why was he beaten up? Because they recognise him from his previous life. Even though he's now a, a monk and he's now a Buddha, in fact. He's a, well, an arahant. So he came back to the Buddha in this state, bleeding, a torn robe, bowl broken. And the Buddha saw him coming and he said, 
bear it, brother. Bear it, brother. So he's asking him to bear the pain. Why have people doing, uh, why have they beaten him up? Because of what he's done previously. You could say in a previous life, it's karma catching up with him from a previous life. The interesting thing is, is catching up with him even though he's enlightened. Even though he's enlightened. Karma is catching up with him. And uh, we've got no way of knowing how the Buddha said this to. I've just realised I'm talking here. I'm not really giving a talk on uh, the Buddha very much, am I? You can talk more on Angulimala. So let's talk a little bit about the Buddha here. He saw him and he said, bear it, Brahmin. Bear it. Bear it, brother. Bear it, brother. Yeah. So um, we've got no way of knowing how the Buddha said this. He may have said it in a heroic kind of way, bear it brother, bear it brother. Or he may have said it very, very gently, very compassionately, bear it brother, bear it brother. We, we don't really know, there's nothing in the text to tell us. You are experiencing here and now the result of deeds because of which you might have been tortured in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years. So you're just experiencing suffering now, which will, you won't have to suffer in the future. Hmm. Can I ask you a Yes. quite see it like that. I, I, I think what the, the Buddha meant what, when he modified it to um, since I was born with the noble birth, I think that's what he meant in the first place. Since I was born. For the Buddha, he was only born when he converted to the Buddha's teaching. That was his birth really. It was a new life. That's the way I see it. So, uh, But Angulamala didn't see it like that so he needed to say, well, I have, haven't I? And the Buddha was saying, not in this life you haven't. Again, metaphorical, yeah. A metaphorical life again, yeah. Yeah. That's the way I see it. So do you, do you disprove my, my version? My version is that no, I... The Buddha didn't make judgments about the path that led him. Ah. I, I, I disagree in, in that I think the Buddha would, would be very judgmental about someone killing someone. I, I don't think he'd say it's, it's okay, you're not really killing people kind of thing, in a kind of pseudo, um, non-dual kind of way. I think the Buddha would be very, very clear that, A, that's very, very unskillful. Yeah. Nothing at all, but um, it reminds me a little bit of Milarepa, the Tibetan. You know the story of Milarepa, who um, he killed a number of people too. It's a family feud and he killed a number of people who killed some people in his family. And uh, then he took up the Dharma and uh, he met Marpa, his great teacher Marpa. And Marpa made him do a number of really, really difficult things, like penance type things. And um, 
what, what Marple was trying to get him to do was practice so hard that he would gain enlightenment in this life. And when you gain enlightenment in this life, you're not reborn. So you don't reap the, benef the, 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 the bad karma of everything you've done. So you kind of leap over uh, karma in a way. And I think this is a similar kind of thing that as he's enlightened, he won't be reborn. So there's no way that he can be he would have to pay for everything he's done in, in the past. You sort of go beyond the law of karma. So the, I think I mentioned it last week, didn't I, that the Buddha was known as Akiriya, which means beyond karma. So anybody who's enlightened goes beyond that kind of uh, law of uh, action and then reaction. Yeah. And in a way, this is another aspect of non-violence, actually, isn't it? That non-violence does not seek retribution. Yeah. Um, when you forgive someone, you forgive them. So um, there would be no point, really, in punishing Angulimala. Uh, because what, what it achieve, he's now an enlightened being. He's, n he's never, ever going to hurt another living being. He's really gentle and compassionate now. So of what use would it be to punish him? And I expect some of them would and many of them wouldn't, as, as, as here, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting, there's, um, there's uh, forgiveness training, isn't there? And uh, there's a man, and I think it's Harvard University in America, who um, works with groups of people who have been very badly wronged. And uh, they feel very, very angry about it. And he, he does this forgiveness training with them. And he's done it with... Uh, uh, mothers and wives of uh, people in Northern Ireland who have sons and husbands have been killed in the troubles and they're very, very they were very very angry about it and it really was not doing them any good at all and he worked with them and bit by bit they learned to forgive and it's made them so much happier so holding that grudge uh, doesn't actually bring any benefits to anyone yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very interesting that I, I gave a talk in Stockholm a few weeks ago uh, on uh, religion and violence, uh, asking the question, why are religions violence? And I, I talk about the Dalai Lama in there and uh, how, uh, what a great um, example he is of complete nonviolence. And of course, you know, he's nonviolent as regards the Chinese, but when uh, when um, NATO got together and invaded um, Bosnia, was it Bosnia? Yeah, Bosnia, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, he was quite against that, even though what was happening in Bosnia was really very, very bad. He was quite against other countries going in violently because he said, you can never predict what that's going to lead to, uh, which is true, isn't it? Violence does seem to lead to further violence. Even if you're violent in the name of non-violence, it seems to lead to further violence. So the Buddha was absolutely clear that violence just never achieved anything. So there's never any reason, no excuse whatsoever for any kind of violence. Mm. And this, in a way, it's almost like a comic story, isn't it? It's almost like a, it's almost, for me, it comes across as um, not so much, I mean, it is a human story as well, but it's almost like um, uh, uh, symbols. The Buddha here is a symbol of nonviolence and Angulimala is a symbol of violence and it's what can happen when they come together. Most times it doesn't happen, but it is possible. Yeah. I've come across the term arahant a couple of times, but I don't really know what it means. Fully enlightened. Arahant, yeah. An arahant is fully enlightened, um, as enlightened as the Buddha, but because the Buddha is the Buddha, the Buddha, he was the first one kind of thing, you don't call other beings Buddhas. Only the Buddha is the Buddha. You only get one Buddha. And his disciples who are enlightened are called Arahants, so it's a kind of mark of respect for the Buddha, really, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's only one Buddha. Yeah. In this world system, anyway. Yeah. You only get one Buddha per world system. What do you mean by world system? Well, it goes back to ancient Indian um, cosmology. A world system was something like a galaxy. Um, you know, masses and masses of worlds, incalculable distance apart from each other. There's only one Buddha in one of those. You only get one at a time. You can't get two in one world system. Yeah. 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 So the Buddhist disciples who were enlightened weren't called Buddhas, they were called Arahants. Yeah. So that's in the... Um, tradition. Yes. Yeah, well, remember in the Tibetan system, they, they do somewhat follow the Indian, because it's Indo Tibetan. You, they somewhat follow Indian cosmology, and they also believe that you get one Buddha in a, in a world system yeah. at a time. At a time, yeah, you can only get one at a time. In Tibetan Buddhism, of course, there are many, many Buddhas, but most of those Buddhas are in other world systems. Yeah, so millions, more than millions of miles away, billions, like an incalculable distance away, the other Buddhas are. Um, but you can, there are different times, so you, get, you can get one Buddha at a time in a world system. Yeah, so when the Buddha's dead, you can get another Buddha then. So the next Buddha, um, uh, according to tradition, is um, Maitreya. He's, he's going to be the next Buddha. But you get, uh, in, uh, in, in the Indo-Tibetan tradition, you get the, some, sometimes called the second Buddha, is Nagarjuna. But that isn't strictly true. He's not really strictly the second Buddha, but some people revere him so much they call him the second Buddha. Yeah. According to these texts, though, there's only one of them. Yeah. Yeah. That will do, won't it? We deserve a cup of tea.